AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. John Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. He's a hip-hop icon whose provocative lyrics changed the game forever. Nas rose from the unforgiving streets of New York and became the bold voice of a new generation. But with success came rivalry, as Nas battled the West and went to war in the East. Nas was at the height of his career, but his world fell apart when he suffered a devastating loss. Resilient, the street's disciple picked up the pieces and came back stronger than ever. Now, from his controversial career to his tumultuous personal life, hip-hop's greatest storyteller tells all. This is Nas, the story behind the music. You can never forget where you come from, no matter how far you go. In the neighborhood where I'm from, people are killed for nothing. You know, you can't just ignore it. That's the beauty of rap music, because we're going to give you the side that no one wants to talk about. We tell you the truth. America, this is your country. This is what's going on. Nasir Jones was born on September 14, 1973, and raised in Queensbridge one of New York City's most notorious and violent housing projects. It was never a night that it wasn't gunshots. Like, every single night of the week, every day. We got into it, who was doing it, who did it, why, what it was over, and that was just daily life. In a neighborhood beset by violence, home provided a welcome contrast for Nas, where he and his younger brother Jungle were nurtured by their mother, Anne, a postal worker, and their father, Oludara, a jazz and blues musician. I was lucky I had all these things in the crib, the xylophone, maracas, my pop's trumpet. We used to bang that thing up, mess it up when we was kids, man, you know? We had so many different things than the average kid had. It just sparked our imagination. So Nas was, like, since we was little, it's like his mind was always, like, just so open for the world and books and stuff and just being a creator. With his father performing on the road frequently, Nas grew close to his mother. My mom was real, you know. She was someone who was there to take care of me and my brother and um, really be there for us and really be concerned about us. We had furniture. We had a color TV. My friends had no furniture. My mom made home-cooked meals. I'd be at some of my friends' houses and they'd be starving. My best friend at the time, his mom OD'd from heroin, man, and they brought her out in a body bag in front of us. I just felt like, damn, why I gotta be like this for him? I couldn't understand that. Like, how could a parent not love their child? You know, I didn't, I, I really felt for a lot of my friends. 
Though Nas had the love and support of both of his parents, their own relationship was damaged by his father's infidelity. And in the summer of 1985, the decision was made to split up. It got to a point where Ann just couldn't take it anymore. And I think at that point was when, you know, she'd had enough and they broke up. One day my pop sat me down and he said, look, I'm about to be out, you the man of the house. You know, I was smiling. I was like, wow, what, a, what an honor. I felt like I was being knighted. You know what I mean? I felt like, oh, this is the next step for me. I'm a man. I ain't got to wait till I'm 18. I'm eight, and I'm a man. <laughs> so it's on. With his father now only a sporadic visitor, Nas grew closer to his best friend, Ill Will Graham. The two bonded over a shared love of hip-hop, and with Queensbridge at the heart of the emerging sound, they wouldn't have to travel far to see the best. There's people right in the hood that the whole New York was listening to. MC Shan, Coogee Rap, Roxanne Chate, Molly Maul, the list goes on. I thought we made hip-hop up, I swear. In Queensbridge, you look out the window and kids was on cardboard, breakdancing everywhere. Two kids be ready to fight, a grown-up would be like, don't fight, breakdance it out. Yeah, man, back in the days, we would breakdance to force some Ds on cardboard. And I was Kid Wave, I used to pop block. I used to pop block. I was nice, I, I thought I was nice. While Nas may have shown promise as a breakdancer, he was on the microphone where he found his calling. He used to rap to us when we used to be in the hallway, just me and my crew and about 12 of us would be sitting around with our eyes closed because he's so like vivid. His, his words, you can just picture them. I knew he was the best ever back then when I was a kid. You know, I'm biased, that's my brother, but you know, he was just as good as Rakim, but 12 years old, you know? Nas's obsession with rap continued to grow, and at the age of 15, he dropped out of high school to pursue his dream of becoming an MC. You know, that hurt my mom, and it hurt me more that I was hurting her by not going to school. But I was determined to make sure that I turned out to be something better. Nas created his own course load, reading literature, writing rhymes, and recording demos with an up-and-coming producer, Large Professor. Large professor told me he's working with Eric B and Rakim. When they weren't recording, he would get me in there and I would record demos on their studio time. One time, Rakim showed up. So I'm like, yo, Ra, yo, this is Nas. Like, yo, listen to this. Ra stood in the doorway. He was listening to it. He's like, yeah, baby, Paul, word, I'm, you know, yeah, yeah. I let him know that, you know, his verse was crazy and keep up that same you know, that same vigor. That to me was like a dream. And I said, all right, now I know what I need to do. I need to be in the studio all the time. All right, now I need to get money. To help finance his time in the recording studio, Nas began selling crack on the streets of Queensbridge. Hustling just came about. There was no way around it. It was just there. It was, it was everybody did it. Nas was just doing it as a get-by thing. Like, he'll do it if he needed the money, and then he'll stop. There's always a crackhead looking for a crack anyway. Back then, people was outside like zombies, walking around like Night of the Living Dead, for real. Back in those days, when you first got outside and you attempted to do it, you, you, you're being introduced to a world that would walk right past you before. And you can easily get flatlined out there because, you know, now you're dealing with, with monsters. Now faced with the perils of the drug trade, Nas began carrying a gun. I had it in the top drawer, on the dresser, the 
Tech 9 semi-automatic machine gun. And that was the gun of that day. And some drugs and the dresser. My mom, she found the drugs, threw them out. Didn't say nothing about the guns. <laughs> you know, we were young. And all through New York, there was a saying that, you know, niggas don't live past the age of 25. And that was something we thought about, but we didn't care about. We didn't give a fuck. For Nas, the senseless violence of the Queensbridge streets would finally touch home on the night of May 23rd, 1992. I was in somebody's apartment. I was chilling out with this girl, and I heard the shots, usually where we be at on the block. And I just knew that had to be one of my people hit. Nas's brother Jungle had been shot in the shoulder and leg, while his best friend Ill Will had taken three bullets in the back. Nas came outside. And he was just looking. And I was sitting down on the floor, and Will was laid out. So I see my boy, and his eyes were still open, and he's like staring, like looking beyond us. You know what I mean? Nas looked at me and was like, yo, he's gone. We just kids ourselves. And, um, you know, things happen. My boy got shot in his back. At the age of 18, Nas buried his closest friend the specter of more violence was looming. I just knew, like, man, it's getting ready to get ugly. It's just everything was dark. And I'm like, what's going on? What is the future going to be like? What am I going to do for a job? I can't just grow up and be nothing. Something has to happen. Fast. Coming up, Nas takes on the biggest name in hip-hop. And later, love at first sight. When Behind the Music continues. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And Lord was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f- themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the summer of 1992, Nas was an 18-year-old MC looking to escape the dangerous street life that had claimed his best friend. 
And before long, he landed his first big break. Chosen by producer Large Professor to appear on the track Live at the Barbecue, Nas shocked the hip-hop underground with his explosive debut verse. To say, when I was 12, I went to hell for snuffing Jesus. Like, you know, like, who punches Jesus in the face? I remember people bugging out off my verse because I'm, I'm saying stuff people ain't never said before, ever, in rap. And I said, all right, it's on from here. The buzz over Live at the Barbecue led to a deal with Columbia Records, and Nas put the hustle of the streets behind him for good. How do you feel to be like a, a, a living prodigy? It's a blessing. I'm a product of hip-hop, you know what I'm saying? I'm a product from, of the old school and the newest of the new. Entering the studio to record his debut album, he boldly set out to make hip-hop history. I wanted to suck the air suction out of your skull, around your brain, out of your head. I wanted to bring a darkness to your face and then explode lights into your pupils. Just, you, you, you're in the presence of something you've never been around before. It was Nas's raw talent and prodigious lyricism on the track New York State of Mind that set the tone of the album. The illest thing about New York State of Mind is he wrote it right there on the spot. He's literally looking at the paper going, I don't know how to start this. I'm actually giving him the count. I'm going, two, three, four. And he looks up and goes, yo. We just looking at him, just stunned, does it in one take. And he's like, how was that? We were like, what? And we all high-fiving like we just won a football game or something. Illmatic was released on April 19, 1994. And while it was not a commercial hit, the album was hailed as an artistic masterpiece, filled with unique rhyme schemes and vivid storytelling. It was like a second coming, you know? He rose again. He was that. He was Nas. He was the shit. He created imagery that I had never heard a rapper describe. It just felt like the hood finally had its manifesto. If you want to understand what the psyche is for a young, you know, African-American male, you listen to Illmatic. Two months after his debut album was released, 20-year-old Nas became a father when his girlfriend Carmen Bryan gave birth to their daughter, Destiny. I was like the happiest person in the world. I immediately went back to the neighborhood and bought like two cases of champagne and put them in shopping carts. Me and my boy BJ just pushed the shopping cart all through the neighborhood giving out champagne bottles. It was just the best thing in the world. With the new responsibility of taking care of a daughter, Nas took a more commercial approach on his second album, and his strategy paid off. Led by the hit single, If I Ruled the World, a collaboration with Lauryn Hill, it was written debuted as the number one album in America on July 2nd, 1996. It was number one four weeks in a row. It was a very emotional thing because he got where he needed to be as an artist. Nas was now one of hip-hop's biggest stars, but he soon found himself unwittingly in the crosshairs of the East Coast-West Coast feud as Tupac Shakur began calling him out on records and in the streets. I didn't see myself as his enemy, but he felt like I was in the middle of a war with him. He's all or nothing, and that's the way he had to set it off. The night of September 4th, the looming tension came to a head when the two rappers crossed paths at the MTV Video Music Awards after party in New York City's Bryant Park. When we get to the after party, Nas grabbed Tupac by the back. Boom, come here. Where you going? We stepped to him and shug and you know, we were like, you in our city, what's going on? 
40, 50 of us is like packed around him, where him and Nas is like squeezed in the middle doing this talking. But I was right there on the side. My friend had the gun. I was trying to take the gun from him to shoot Tupac. With tempers flaring, Nas and Tupac decided to clear the air. You know, we got to the bottom of it right then and there. I told him I'm hearing you about the diss me in an album. And he said, yeah, I got this album where I came at you because I heard you were coming for me. I'm like, I got no songs about you, bro. And he was like, Nas, me and your brothers, we're never supposed to go at it, not me and you. These are his words. He's like, man, I'll take that off the album. Come meet me in Vegas. But the two rappers would never meet again. By the time Nas arrived in Las Vegas, Tupac Shakur had been gunned down. And while the loss hit especially hard for the 23-year-old MC, it would pale in comparison to the shocking news he would soon receive. His mother, Anne, had breast cancer. When she first told me uh, she had been diagnosed, um, man, I was, I was floored, man. I was done. That felt like somebody just shot me in the head, heart. I was like, this is not supposed to be happening. This ain't supposed to be happening right now. Why is this happening to her? Why is this ha- Not this lady. This is the sweetest lady I ever met in my life. This is the nicest lady in the world. Why is this happening to her? She had to have her breast removed. And, you know, she was still hanging around and she was strong. And I was like, wow, what would I do if this was me? Could I handle this? And I just saw her as the bravest person I'd ever meet in my life. By 1999, Nas had firmly established himself as one of hip-hop's biggest stars. But in spite of his success, the Queensbridge MC found himself facing criticism by many who felt he'd lost touch with his roots. With the hit single, Hate Me Now, Nas gave his unequivocal response. When it got more about champagne, when it got more about classier necklaces and different lifestyle, I caught a lot of hate. You know, certain people are jealous of your success. Certain people think you owe them something. So I thought, Hate Me Now would be a perfect anthem for all haters around the world. But later that year, the criticism only grew louder when his follow-up album, Nostradamus, was deemed a creative and commercial disappointment. Nas was done, big name, but not musically, not relevant, not putting out relevant music. And then Jay-Z used that leverage and made that song the takeover. Intent on claiming the throne as hip-hop's undisputed king, Jay-Z took direct aim at Nas. Filled with harsh insults, TakeOver made reference to Jay-Z sleeping with Carmen Bryan, Nas's ex-girlfriend, and the mother of his daughter. TakeOver is a destroyer. Nas was counted out by everybody. Yeah, you go anywhere, it's like, man, he can't come back from that. Despite the fact that his reputation was at stake and his career on the line, Nas remained silent. Nas wasn't going to make no diss record back. We had to force Nas to do that, man. I remember pulling up one day, Nas was driving in front of me. I was behind him. I jumped out of my car, got in his car, and left my car in the street, in the city of Manhattan. Keys in the ignition, door open and everything. Got in his car yelling, yo, we gotta get this dude. Heeding his brother's words, Nas entered the studio and gave his response. On December 3rd, 2001, Ether hit the airwaves. When it came out, everybody's calling like, why'd you go that hard? Why'd you go that hard? That was like the toughest diss ever. I know Jay-Z can't even hear one noise out of that record to this day. 
They did a poll in New York City. Is it going to be Ether or is it going to be TakeOver? Who won? And New York chose Ether. Clearly, Nas won that battle. He took that right hand to the chin and got off the mat and punched him right back in the face. Nas's comeback continued with the 2001 release of Stomatic, his most critically acclaimed album in years. But Nas's triumph would be short-lived. In April of 2002, while on tour, his mom's health took a sharp turn for the worse, and he rushed home to be by her side. I got the call, yo, she's not doing good, hurry up. When I came is when she started to get bad, and you know, and I seen a tear come down her eye, and I knew she was waiting for me to get there before she left. Moments later, Nas's mother, Ann Jones, passed away in his arms. Nas, man, I don't know how he handled that. I was, like, so sad, I couldn't do anything. Funeral, any, all that stuff, I don't know how he handled that, man. That's the strongest guy I, I probably ever knew in my life. It was heavy, man, it was heavy. And it took a lot of thinking on my part, you know, what happens now. I would look at myself at the mirror, look at my arm and see her. So I'm like, she's still alive. She's right here, me and my brother and her grandkids. You know what I mean? And that gave me a great feeling. You know, this is what happens. This is life. You got to keep living on. Coming up, Nas finds his soulmate. When Behind the Music continues. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the Lord was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the summer of 2002, Nas was grieving over the death of his mother, Anne, who months earlier had lost her three-year battle with breast cancer. Distraught, the 29-year-old rapper found himself in a dark place. I was just by myself, and I wanted to be by myself, because I decided I'm going to 
stop. I'm not going to do nothing. I'm not going to rap no more. I'm going back to the streets, even. I want to go out in a blaze. I don't even care no more. But if I didn't make that decision to go work, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. Because I'd have made sure somebody took me out. Nas channeled his pain into his music, and three weeks later, God's Son was complete. The album, considered a major critical success, was dedicated to his mom and included the stirring tribute song, Dance. He loved his mom, and um, he needed that. He needed a way to express his feelings. I can't listen to that record. I can't do it. I tried, I tried, no, I walk away, I cut that off immediately. I'm a, that'll break me down, like, for real. The track featured a surprise guest on trumpet, Nas's father, Olu. Even though my mom and him had been separated, I know my first you know, lessons in life came from these two people. So I wanted him to play on it. It just gave me that feeling of when I was a kid. For Nas, dance would mark the start of a concerted effort to reconnect with his father, and the two would collaborate again on the single Bridging the Gap. Nas and his dad weren't always that close. There was points where he wasn't around and Nas was a teenager growing up, so it was important for him to now make that relationship happen. I realized, man, we get one life and one of my parents are gone and, you know, I wanted to hang out with Pops a lot more. And to me it was ill because in hip-hop music you don't hear many records celebrating the fathers. Having reconciled with his father, Nas began to seek stability in his romantic life as well. Sitting at home one night channel surfing, he stumbled across R&B starlet Khalees and had a vision. When I first saw the song, I Hate You So Much Right Now, I'm like, who is this black rock star screaming in the TV? I love it. I said, that girl right there, that's my girlfriend. She's going to be my girlfriend. A few months later, at an MTV Awards after party, Nas spotted Khalees from across the room and went over to introduce himself. I looked up and down. She's a good height with the heels on, great smile, a gold tooth in there for no reason, still super cute. That's it. Let's go. He says, you're going to be my wife. And, uh, you know, man, couldn't nobody find either one of them for a couple weeks. <laughs> Nas and Khalees soon became one of hip-hop's most talked about and inseparable couples. I was the calmer person for the most part, and she was the live wire. It just was cool. Opposites. I don't think I've ever seen Nas truly happy as a grown man, and Khalees did that for him. After two years of dating, the couple wed on January 8th of 2005 in Atlanta's Morningside Baptist Church. It was real G because, you know, I was ready to make that move, and I felt real good, man. It was one of the happiest days. For him to get married like that was a special moment. I knew he was serious and he really loved this girl, you know, and that he would stay with her forever. In the spring of 2006, Nas was riding high after the success of three consecutive hit albums. After years of heated rivalry with Jay-Z, a pivotal choice lay before Nas as he was asked to join Def Jam Records, the label that had recently named Jay as its president. Me and him hadn't spoken. We saw each other in places, but there was no conversation, no dialogue. And um, 
L.A. Reid, who was then the man at Def Jam. He said, you'd you be willing to talk to Jay? And then, you know, this thing is old by now. I'm like, yeah. We went down to the studio, man. We just dapped each other up, started laughing. And the first thing Jay said to me, man, yo, you all right? And I guess he heard about my mom passing. Beyond everything else, he looked at me and said, yo, man, you all right, man? And I, I said, yo, this is, this is a beautiful start right here. Soon after, the two rappers made the reconciliation public, when Nas made a surprise appearance at Jay-Z's I Declare War concert in New Jersey. That was a beautiful thing for everybody to see, to show that you could be bigger than the beef. To this day, one of the illest moments in hip-hop. In 2006, Nas signed with Def Jam, officially putting the beef to rest. You can't sign an artist of Nas' statue. You can only partner with him. Nas's first album with the label, the provocatively titled Hip Hop Is Dead, shot right to number one. And he continued to push the envelope further when he chose to unveil the title of his next project at the 2008 Grammys. I never thought that I would do an album called Nigga. You know, it just hit me one day. There's a history that comes with the word, horrific history that comes with that word. And me making an album called Nigga can open up dialogue about that who should use it and who should not. And who are the niggas today? Is it women? Is it poor people? Is it, who is it? At a time when the NAACP was campaigning to stop the use of the word, Nas's decision stoked the fires of an already heated public debate, and the backlash poured in. Everybody was talking about it. It created so much uproar that no major retail stores were going to carry the album. There was no way in the world that they were going to carry it. Under pressure, Nas relented and chose to go with no title at all. Despite the setback, when the album debuted in the summer of 2008, it was number one. But for Nas, the greatest satisfaction came from knowing he had helped stir a valuable public debate. I felt great that people were scared of that album title. This is hip-hop music, man. This is what it's about. While Nas never shied away from conflict in public, at home, it had become an unwelcome distraction. His marriage to Khalees was unraveling. I started to feel like that love was gone between both of us. There were reports that she felt like he was cheating on her. Then there were rumors that she had like some sex tape that was about to leak, and I'm sure none of that helps. She would spend the money Nas would make like there was no tomorrow. And that caused a lot of friction in their marriage too. I felt like why go on being miserable? You know what I'm saying? So it came to a point where I couldn't take it no more. Nas strongly considered filing for divorce. He, to the point where he had everything docked up. On the verge of ending it all, Nas received news that forced him to reconsider. Khalees was pregnant with a baby boy. When he found out he was having a son, I think it made him feel like if there's a chance that this should work, for him to have what I didn't have, then I'm gonna sacrifice and do everything I can. It was hard, but the bottom line is he's the most important thing. He's the blessing, you know, so let's keep it good for him. It's all about him. But despite their best efforts, the relationship was frayed beyond repair. And on April 30th, 2009, after four years of marriage, Khalees did what Nas couldn't bring himself to do and filed for a divorce. She took her stuff out of the house and left her green wedding dress. 
and that was all she left. In the spring of 2009, Nas was coping with a contentious and highly publicized divorce from R&B starlet Khalees, who was pregnant with their child. People will be talking about it all the time, you know, radio stations, TV, and, you know, I'm a private person, and to have all this stuff about me out there is just wild. Like, I wanted to go to another country for real. Through music, Nas once again found the escape he needed. Collaborating with reggae artist Damian Marley, he recorded Distant Relatives, an album that highlighted Africa's political strife and widespread poverty. I wanted to do an album that was different from anything that I'd done. We were talking about something that wasn't about me, it wasn't about Damien, it was about our views on people who were suffering. With all that was happening in Nas' personal life, this was a good um, release, a good way to take him out to the center of what he was in. The fact that I was going through this nasty divorce, but yet I'm working on this beautiful music, it was the best thing in the world. But on July 21st, 2009, Nas received some surprising news from an unlikely source. Harvey from TMZ shot me an email, and he said, look, I'm about to report this, but I felt like you should know, Khalees just went into labor. I don't think I could have ever felt worse for a person than I did for Nas that day, telling him, you just found out your son was being born through basically a gossip site. He didn't know where she was in labor. He didn't know where she was at, nothing. After several hours of searching, Nas finally found the hospital where Khalees was giving birth. I got to the hospital about five minutes after he was born. Checked to see how she was. She was cool, and it wasn't about us. It was just about this little dude. I just held him, and I'm like, what's up, Knight? You ready for this? You ready for the world? Nas is always the benchmark for everybody. He's your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. I think Nas is the greatest MC. And for him to be 20 years and still going, and people wanting to hear what he has to say, man, it's just a testament to his endurance and his strength. Nas is an artist. Some people just rap. He's a, he's a rapper and an artist. That freedom that everybody should have to follow their heart is exemplified in Nas and his rap and his very presence. I think I'm a living proof that you can stick to your guns and do how, how you want to do it and remain sucker free. You can just be you and do you and don't let nobody mess with your flow. Forget the cash, forget the cars, forget all of that stuff. The first thing is the music. The first thing. Nas continues to build on a legendary career with new music, including his 15th studio album, Magic. To celebrate the 20th anniversary of Illmatic, Nas performed at the John F. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts with the National Symphony Orchestra. The performance was eventually released as an album. Nas has also been recognized for his efforts to bring constructive music programs to underserved youth through nonprofit work. In 2013, Harvard University honored Nas, establishing the Nazir Jones Hip Hop Fellowship, which provides funding to scholars and artists that show creativity within hip hop. 
Listen and subscribe to Behind the Music on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Be sure to rate and review Behind the Music on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Want more episodes? You can watch Remastered, Best of the Vault, and new episodes of Behind the Music only on Paramount+. Plus. John Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.